We're going to continue to uh, talk about knowing God. And today, um, I want to talk about something that is probably both the domain of the Belkineer and the Traveler. And it is this verse from Jeremiah that uh, really catches my attention. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Brianna wants the, the youth to leave again, and I promised I would not forget. <laughs> Let not the smart man glory in the fact he never misses the cue, but blah, blah. All right. I don't know how that happened. I, I, was, I was ready for it today as well. <clears throat> Rewind. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. So honestly, do we glory in this? Or if truth be told, do we glory in one of the other things? Um, you know, you, you see folks that have lots of, of financial resources and Somehow or other, they, they get to mention that, you know, maybe it's because the Lamborghini has just pulled up, you know, or whatever. And, you know, honestly, rich people not glory in their riches because many times they, they earned those riches honestly and, and by diligent working, right? Or talk to somebody who has just finished a PhD and he has sacrificed and um, his family has, you know, been willing for meager rations while he paid for his way through this PhD. And you say, so that really doesn't matter. Well, it does because he's going to glory in that PhD. See if he doesn't want to be called Dr. So-and-so by, by the time that's all finished, right? Or somebody who's... Uh, you know, um, ultimate fighter. You say, those muscles don't impress me. I could probably take you if I wanted to, but, right? No. So we do, we, we do, we glory in the things that we commit our time to and commit our effort to. And there, there's something that, that is all right about that. There's something about being able to be pleased with what you've accomplished. But Jeremiah says, um, those things notwithstanding, the thing that you should be wanting to glory in because it intrinsically has the most to offer is that you know and understand God. So, th so there's a challenge just to say as much as we would expend by way of effort and time and resources to become mighty or wise or, or rich, um, we are given the opportunity to invest ourselves in knowing God with the result promised that we will then be able to glory in the thing that is way more glorious than anything else we'd be glorying in. And what Jeremiah says is, is lovely. He says it's not just that you know God, but that you actually understand God. And the rest of the verse goes on to say, that he is a God of justice and mercy and unfailing kindness. So Jeremiah says, you can, 
you know, glory in whatever you like. But if you want to glory in the thing that is most glorious, then glory in this, that you know and that you understand God, that you know who he is, you know him, and you know what he's like. So there's our challenge, is to day by day say, how can I sort of recalibrate my heart to say that today I want to learn something more of God? And it's not an isolated topic of study or subject of study. It, it should be integrated in everything we're doing. So when you drive over the escarpment, say all of this is what God made. All of those, so the forest floor before the canopy is there, while the sun is just peeking through, these little plants are seizing the opportunity and springing up. And that's what God is doing right now. He's as interested in those trillium as he is in anything else because he made it and it's beautiful and it's in his woods and he likes this time of year as well because it talks of the promise of new life and all of that, right? So no matter what you're doing, where is God? What do you learn about God even in the doing? And then what is it that you now know and understand and can talk about? So I, I would like to take us in a sort of a strange little direction with this. Because the, this is the pearl of great price. This, this is the treasure hidden in the field. This is the thing. This is the holy grail to know God and to understand him, to know how he behaves. You know that I, I do a lot of weddings. And I did yesterday three weddings. And something happened at one of the weddings that has happened honestly many, many, many times. So the reason I do these weddings is not because I'm the pastor of this church. In fact, it surprises the people that I married that I'm a pastor. It doesn't surprise you that I'm a pastor because you know that even though I am the character I am, this is my job. So, But they, they meet me and get to know me and they don't believe I'm a pastor. And I think that's a good thing. If people say, yeah, I thought you were a pastor, I, I don't take that as a compliment. For, for whatever reason, right? Right, Mike? Yep, we're good. Here's what happens. The people don't know how to get to a priest or a rabbi or a pastor because they, they don't go to church. And so they come to us because they can find us from the venue and where they're getting married and, and from our website. And the conversations that I have with folks always go in the same direction, always are on the same track. So what do you do, really? I'm a pastor. Oh, um, we're really not religious. And so I say, I'm not either. And then we have, we have something to talk about, right? But here's what happens. It happened yesterday, and, and this is, um, I, I was going this direction f with my talk, and yesterday confirmed it. Um, a person came up while I was setting up the, uh, the table for signing the register and doing all the government's work. And uh, he came up, he said, I'm, uh, I'm a pastor as well, so I'm going to be watching you. So I said, oh, cool. So I said, tell me, where are you a pastor? And he, he told me that he was a pastor in Western Canada and that he was the uncle of the bride. So I was, we had a lovely chat, and I began to walk out of the chapel, and um, I was talking to, to the person going to run the microphone, and another man came over and he said, hey, my brother just told me that you're a pastor, and um, he, he named the denomination, because I had told him we're Christian Missionary Alliance and all that. He said, I'm a pastor as well. 
I'm a pastor in Calgary. So, great, two pastors in a row, right? Um, so, pressure's on. So, I, I go down to, uh, to say hello to the bride, and her father is there. And he says, my brother just texted me and told me that you're a pastor. And he said, I am too. So, I'm going, is this like a crazy dream, and I'm going to pinch myself and wake up, or, or what? So uh, he, he told me where he's a pastor and, and all the rest. So then I came back up to the chaplain. The uncle was standing outside. He said, we've been praying for my niece for so long that she'll come back to the Lord. Now, I've come to resent that phrase. And now you're going to be surprised with me, right? Disappointed with me. Um, She's away from the Lord. Well, the truth is, most of our young adults then are away from the Lord. Statistics are clear as anything that the majority of young adults who grew up in churches like ours are away from the Lord, if, if that's what we have to call their status. And that's what I get annoyed about. Are they away from the Lord, or by the stories that I hear from them, are they away from church? Or, sad to say, are they away from their families? And what I hear from these families is kind of a, well, we're glad they found an evangelical. And so, I mean, there was this wink-wink yesterday that said, so we'll count on you, right? And I remembered a conversation over coffee with this couple when they told me that they had ended up being agnostic because of their experience in their families and their churches. So do I have a category called away from the Lord? No, actually. I have a category called away from church, away from family, away from expectations, away from away from, but not away from the Lord. And when people tell me they're praying that their children who once walked with the Lord are away from the Lord, boy, it just turns something in my head that wants to say, could, could we just rethink and retalk what you've just said? Uh, another situation was one in which the father referred to the groom and his best man. And he recognized who I was, the pastor, and he said, um, so I'm glad you're working with them because my son is away from the Lord. His brother still walks with the Lord. I'm like, what? And I had also had a conversation with them, and I knew why the groom was away from the Lord. because He was away from his dad. Because his dad's version of Christianity was pretty strict, right? Pretty legalistic. Pretty you do this and don't do that kind of thing. So here's where I'm going to go with this. The best thing is to know God. The, the best thing beyond any other thing is to know God. So there's a story that I'm drawn to that helps us think about this. It's the story of the prodigal son. And I want to talk again about that story in light of this reality that most of our young adult children are away from the Lord. And we, we all, all of us around the room, if we have children, I think to a person, we will say, you know what, 
they are whatever that is, not going to church, right? So here's the story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, his younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am, dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, filled with love and compassion. He ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but he is found." The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you. I've never once refused to do a single thing you told me to. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. His father said to him, Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me. Everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your son or your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he is found. The Rembrandt picture of the father and the prodigal son is one that has caught the attention of, of many, many, many people. It's so full of emotion and drama. So I want to think about that story in the context of the people that we might call away from the Lord, whom we would like to see come back to the Lord. And, and I would like to try to clarify the difference between church and generational Christian ethics and the Lord and knowing God. Because I, I am not at all convinced that it's as simple as, in fact, I'm sure it is not as simple as away from the Lord because we don't see him in church or her in church, or because they have questions that they can't get over and haven't been able to get answered for them. Um, questions that come to my mind related to this whole story are these. Um, first of all, why did the son leave? He, he left because he he was chasing some dream right he he was chasing some boasting thing he, he didn't leave because he wanted to fail he didn't leave because he wanted to rebel and maybe the sum of that he he left because the grass was greener on the other side he left because there was no good reason to stay 
right? So, why do our children leave? For those reasons, I think, and others. But what we would like to do is talk about what's the reason to stay in a close relational walk with God, church notwithstanding, right? Um, What is it that our children want? And why is it stronger in their wanting than God being still a very big part of, of their picture? And are our children always walking away from God when they are whatever it is that we've called them? Because I've had some very surprising conversations in which people that I think in the categorizing game are away from the Lord are actually far more hungry and are searching more diligently for truth and for meaning than obedient children of ours who keep coming to church on Sunday because it's less hassle than saying no to to mom and dad, right? Or you can't get the free Sunday dinner if you don't go to church, so yeah, we'll go to church, right? So it's, it's not a binary world of people that are those who walk with the Lord and those who are not walking with the Lord are away from the Lord, and the way you tell is going to church. Did the young man leave because he hated his father? I don't think so. He left because there was a pot of gold in front of him that he could have and that he could use to to get meaning and happiness for his life. Second question is, why did the other son stay? And if the first son, the younger one, left... um, for bad reasons, so did the second son stay for bad reasons. Didn't he? What was going on with him? Everything was fine till that guy came back and you threw a party for him. And here I am. I have been obedient my whole life. I've never done anything wrong. I've never not done what you wanted me to do. You have never even given me a goat to have a party with my friends with. Why why did the older brother stay? He stayed out of duty and to get the rewards for keeping the rules. And that's a bad reason to stay. So maybe if the older brother had left, he would have done better at the end of the story than he did by staying. So, see, it's not that simple, is it? Um, There are things in our hearts, there are things in our minds that aren't always terribly obvious, given the things that we do. What did the sons think? What What were they thinking as they were deciding to go or to stay? What were they thinking about the father? So the older brother, what was he thinking about the father? He was thinking that the father was a bit of a hard taskmaster, and you basically needed to do what you were told. You needed to meet his expectations, and as long as you did, at the end of the day, there was reward for you. You'd get your reward for being obedient, for being diligent, for being dutiful. 
because that's what the father's like. It's, you know, my, my dad, he doesn't come to any parties. He certainly doesn't give me any goats. So I just, I show up and I, I please him. I do what he wants me to do. And that's my life. The, the younger son just had not given enough thought to what the father was like until he found himself actually entertaining the possibility of eating pig food. And then he thought, back home, my father's servants eat well. Um, even though I have done what I've done, which is I have squandered his inheritance. I've, I've, I've got nothing left. Even though I've done what I've done, I think if I go back, he might let me come and work as one of his servants. Now that's a different version of the father already than the older brother. Because when he does come home and there is a welcome, the older brother says, no, 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 no. This is not who you are. This is not how you behave. That's not the deal I had with you. But the younger son, on his way home, probably went over and over and over in his mind what he was going to say. Because what he thought he would say when he was thinking about eating pig food was exactly what he ended up saying. So he got home and he tried to say to his father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Please, t-. and then the father says, enough, enough of it. And there's, there's the lovely drama of the father having been waiting for him to come home. And when the father sees him and he's still a long way away, the father runs out to him and throws himself upon him and is broken in his heart and in his mind and says, we have to have a party. The older brother had the wrong version of the father. The younger son had still a deficient view of the father. He didn't dare to hope for what the father was actually like. And the father said, I will hear none of this being a servant in my house. My son was dead and now he's alive. My son was lost and now he's found. So kill that fatted calf that we've been saving up for a great party because we're going to have that great party. And the older brother says, I'm not coming. I will not be part of this. What the father think? The father, somehow or other, was not aware of the older brother's issues. Um, I didn't know you had a problem with this. You didn't say you have a problem with this. And it was only when your brother came home that all of a sudden you're all huffy about this. And what's wrong with you? What, what the father thought about the son was the younger son. This, this is my son. And he waited for him for his return every day, watching from the porch for the time his son would return. What did the father think of what the son did? I'm, I'm sure he was shocked and appalled by what the son had gone and done. But while the son was there, where were the father's thoughts? 
they were still always of the sun. When did the sun stop being the sun? He never did. In the Father's mind and heart, the sun was never away from the Lord. Was the sun in some dark, unfortunate place? Yes, indeed. But he was still the son of the Father, for whom the heart of the Father beat and beat and beat. The Father lived in sheer expectation of the return of his son. I don't think it shocked him. That's why every day he was on the porch watching and watching and watching. And when the son came back, the father didn't say, okay, before we do anything else, we need to have a difficult conversation. What did you think you were doing? Where did you think you were going? Why did you think you could come waltzing back in here? There was no conversation like that. Because the father's heart was always welded to the son's heart, longing for the day that he would come back into the fellowship of the home, into the fellowship with the father. Now, the older son said, it can't be, this, this doesn't fit. It can't, it can't be this in my model of, of church and religion. And the father said, well, it is, it's going to be. The household was different from the return of the prodigal forward. Presumably something broke in the father's heart and mind that made him less the kind of ruthless, um, demanding father that the older brother perceived him to be and had, had locked into his expectations. It was different. Church has to be different, and we're, we're, we're trying for it to be different. But, but there's a, a verse in um, Judges 3, verse 2 that's really interesting. It says that when the Israelites moved into the land, God didn't let them conquer all the nations. He left some enemies around them. And Judges 3, verse 2 says, here's why. So that the generations to come who didn't know war can learn war. Right, They weren't part of the invasion. They weren't part of the conquering, the conquest. So there needed to be a few enemies left here and there so that they learned their own warfare. Every generation needs to learn its own warfare. Here's what has happened in my life. I grew up, hymns, suits, church three times a Sunday. Some of you remember those good old days. They weren't so bad in some ways. But oh my goodness, did we hate the collar and tie. And, the, and see, we weren't even allowed to take the Sunday clothes off. So if, and you had to have a nap in the afternoon in your Sunday clothes. And you still had to go back to Sunday school and then go back to church at night. Really, that was church. So the rebellion, the new warfare for my generation was the sort of the folky movement of music in the 60s, right? Um, so we began to have sing-alongs in homes instead of church on Sunday evenings. There'd be a piano, and um, there were these praise 
song books. I still remember the first one was green, the second one was orange, and it was more folky stuff. And our parents thought it was awful. Right? And wouldn't they love to see what's changing today, right? So there we were, and there was a bit of a shift. And within the culture, within the house, we didn't have to go anywhere. We stayed at home, but we got to have music that was a little different than what we grew up with. Then there was the whole British Graham Kendrick, um, you know, praise, worship, um, victory sort of movement that again notched the church towards a more informal um, singing songs that were heartfelt um, and not just sort of the rote of the hymns. And that worked. So there was a generation that kind of stuck around because, well, it, it doesn't have to be just the hymns and the liturgy and all of that kind of stuff. The older I get, by the way, the more I long for the hymns and the liturgy and the prayers, right? Because there's something lovely about the verses of a hymn that come to my mind still when I need to hear from the Lord. Well, then came a time when people would be beginning to drift away from church. And so we, we did a timeout and we said, hey, wait, don't leave. We promise you church can be what you didn't think it could be. We promise it can be relevant instead of irrelevant. We promise you we're not going to ask you for money all the time because that's what you think. And we promise you that we will give you music the like of which you would have to go and pay money at a club or something. It'll be, there will be a band to beat all bands, and church will not be what it once was. And so we pulled that off for a couple of decades. And church was cool. P- people came back to church. They believed us and they came back. And what we promised them, we delivered. Now, into that foray came the generation that are my kids' generation. And they had kind of a tough look at that. And they scratched their heads and they said, this isn't real. It's not real. And sometimes they were impressed by what we pulled off, but sometimes they said, it's actually not even as good as what you said it would be. So what they dealt with was something that essentially showed them the door because there wasn't another change that could happen for warfare for their generation um, because it was it was too entrenched. It was it was owned by baby boomers who own the world, who whatever they do is gonna be dominant no matter what you think. So if you're their kids, too bad. They're gonna hold on to that seeker approach, to that um, you know entertainment approach, and I'm being overly negative about it all because that was part of it, right? They looked around inside the church and said, I don't know how you fix that. There's not a better version of this that we want. We actually are just really, really suspicious of that. And all the more when a lot of the idols begin to fall off the podiums. And we say, when you scratch this under the surface, it just doesn't seem real. And so they went away. And they've stayed away. But they're not away from the Lord. There's, 
there's another chapter that is being written and will be written. But I think it has to be a chapter that is written without the pejorative language and the judging and the categorizing of saying, oh, dear, well, it must be terrible to be you. You're, I hear your, your kids don't go to church anymore. They're, they're away from the Lord. And you go, well, in some way, maybe that's what they are, but they're not cut off from us as their family. and They're not cut off from their spiritual yearnings. And in fact, if, if, you, if you just sort of, you know, scrape down to it, you'll find that they're, they're not really away from the Lord. So the prodigal is, is the worst case scenario. So Jesus gave us a story and said, imagine, imagine the worst that you could about somebody walking away from organized religion. What, what, what would that be? Well, let's say squander an inheritance. Yeah, yep. Party every day. Hang out with hookers. What could be worse than this? And then Jesus says, and so here's the story. Here's what he did, and here's what happened. Lesson to be learned is that the story is not over when the person is not still in the house, right? So we have an interesting family. Two of our children would be more uh, church socialized, and two are more not church socialized, right? The younger two not as church socialized as the older two. And they've all got lots of criticism of the church. Um, I think the reason my boys all became police officers, it was like, Dad, you can go ahead and talk about right and wrong all you want. We'll go out and fix it. So, All of, all of our boys have had a, a, a close person die on the job or on the way home from the job. And with one of my sons, he, he said, when we talked about the funeral for his friend, he said, it's okay, Dad, I gave him a get-out-of-hell-free card. Now, you need to know what in Campbell vocabulary that is. So when, when my kids were in high school, they and their high school buddies had this thing that their high school friends thought that my sons, because they were pastor's kids, were given a few gratis get-out-of-hell-free cards that they could give to their friends. And so their friends counted on that, right? When Colin's friend died, he said, it's okay, Dad, because... They asked me to take the funeral for this young man. He said, I gave him a get-out-of-hell-free card. He said, you know what I'm talking about. I told him about Jesus. I told him that Jesus died for our sins. I told him how to come to know Jesus, and he did. Okay. Good to know that underneath the I hate church, I'm not going back to church, is the real thing. It's still there. It's still true. Another son whose friend died in a motorcycle accident on his way home from work. He and my son used to do drywall together. And while they were doing drywall, they sang Newsboys songs because both of them had grown up in the church, in youth groups with those songs. And at his funeral, my son was able to say, I know I will see him again because. So it's just not that clear. And so when someone, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm ranting. When someone says to me, he or she's away from the Lord, I go, yikes, stop saying that. Talk. Because when I talk to these kids, they, they're very willing to talk about why they don't go to church, but what they do do believe. 
And the point is that the church is in huge transition. But if, if we have to say that then 60% of the young adults who grew up in church are not Christians anymore because they don't go to church, that, that as a statistic is not even acceptable. And we should be driven to something, I think, that makes us say, well, so what are the different conversations we need to have? When the one comes home for Thanksgiving that would be in the category, is he as welcome as everybody else? Does he get a, um, you know, your brother's a good son to us? I'm not so sure about you. Does, I mean, is there that different thing? Or does everybody, just, just talk about our families, Family to family, is everybody in your family fully welcome at your table? Is anybody more welcome than others? Because that's where it all starts breaking apart. Your door must be wide open to anybody that even glances back in your direction. They do not need to know that they would be judged or shamed or shunned. God does all the work. Jesus is well able to convict of sin and to bring people to repentance. He's well able to do it. It's not up to you. It's up to us to know how to love. So I had a a great friend, a boyhood friend of mine from Belfast, was a pastor in, in Grand Rapids. Ed died a couple of years ago now of ALS. And... Ed was a pastor of the, a very large church, um, Calvary Church in Grand Rapids. And Grand Rapids had a, an emerging and, and growing um, gay community. And um, Ed, Ed was, was pretty fundamentalist. He was Jerry Falwell's um, chief of staff for a while. So the church um, was known to be a place of, of this fundamentalist Protestant stripe. So Ed went and asked for a meeting with leaders in the gay community. Um, it was the time when AIDS was, was a, a terrifying phenomenon. And Ed, he, he said, I never talked to them about sin or judgment. I came to them and I said, we are followers of Jesus Christ. What can we do to show his love to you? Um, at Ed's funeral, people from that community said, we were never wondering about what Ed thought of our lifestyle. We were also never wondering whether or not he loved us. See, it's God's business to do the judging stuff. And Ed said, it's God's business to do that judging stuff. Or if you want to hear me rant about it, come on to church and I'll do that. But it is my business to love you. And that was the impact and the mark that that he made. So everybody's welcome at the table. Some things are clear, some things are not clear. But some things we just get wrong in our heads. So don't close the door on anybody. And just try to watch your mouth. Watch how you describe people. And uh, see if you don't describe them with this in mind, in a, in a way that better forecasts what they will become. Because the, the son who was away was never away from the Lord. He, my son, he's my son. I'm waiting for him to come home. And he's welcome. He comes.
Father, we thank you for the, the, the drama of this story that lives for us in, in its many, many lessons. And we pray that you will give us wisdom and ways forward in our families and in our relationships. In Jesus' name.